It's interesting that we're starting a book study in the, in the study of James today because in the interest of making this message really, really short, I could condense it all down to consider it all joy. And then this morning, just kind of prep talking to everyone before the message even started. I, I love to kind of just meander about as you guys kind of wander into the church and just kind of check in with you. And it just seems there's an overwhelming amount of trials and afflictions in our life right now that maybe the sequence, for those of you that were willing to get up today, those of you that were willing to put up with the intense heat, even though it's a holiday weekend, and all the other components that would have said, you know what, today's the perfect day to stand down. For those of you that did actually show up, for those of you online that are watching, it just seems nothing's probably more appropriate than the message that we're going to share with you today. Because it comes from someone who spent his whole life pretty much being skeptical, and yet this is the words that he wrote for us. Now, what's interesting about James is he actually focuses on writing to a group of believers in a society that's not friendly towards them. So I started thinking about that. That's an interesting conundrum, too, when you think about just the situation we're in right now, that James writes this letter to these early Jewish believers, and the situation they are in was very hostile. I like it because it also tells me that James is going to focus on something. He's going to focus to them on one, one or two things. He's going to emphasize on practical Christian living and ethics and morality. And because he's going to focus on that, kind of like Proverbs, he has lots of little sound bites all over the place with interesting little bits of information and some that are really good to chew on. Um, it's written by someone, like I said, who wasn't a believer his whole life. He, he was Jesus' half-brother, and he pretty much grew up for the most part of his life not believing. But something occurred after the resurrection, and that something was his brother Jesus actually coming back and speaking to him that changed his perspective, his perspective so radically that he actually became a servant of God. And we'll actually notice some verbiage that he uses in the opening line to call himself a specialized servant, which is a doulos. It means an indentured servant. It means someone that's completely dedicated to his master. And as I read it this week, it's only five chapters long, but as I read it this week, I felt like, you, know, you ever been really super hungry? And you're so hungry, you're trying to think, like, what's the most satiating meal that I can eat? I mean, I don't have a lot of time, but I'm just really, really hungry. For me, it's oatmeal. For me, it's just one bowl of oatmeal. I don't even think you can actually get through a bowl of oatmeal. I think it's physically impossible to get through a bowl of oatmeal. But there's something about oatmeal that just adds, and I started reading James, and this whole week I was just feeling like, man, this is a really satisfying book to read right now at this stage of my life. And so hopefully with you too, if you're hungry for truths about who God is, if you're hungry for truths about what Christian ethics and morality are about, I think James will be a very satisfying bite for you. Now, there are a couple of James in the Bible, so just to kind of clarify which ones, there's two apostles. So the first apostle that was one of the first ones selected is James, the sons of thunder, with his brother John. Definitely not them. They were known as sons of thunder for ones who ran to trouble and embraced trouble and kind of, if there was an opportunity to, to flex, they were definitely the guys that wanted to go. Uh, and and unfortunately, that particular James was actually martyred before this book was actually written. There was another apostle called James Alphaeus. He was, he was known as James the Less. So you have James the Greater, the first one, and James the Less. But it's not less because he's less than. It's simply less because he's younger than. So those are the two James, and they were both apostles. However, the James that we're going to be talking about today is Jesus' half-brother. In case you didn't know, Jesus did have brothers and sisters. They're both noted in the Bible. And Jesus' brothers are all listed out, and James was listed first. So based on being listed first, he's probably Jesus' older brother. James, Joseph, Judas, Simon, and sisters were all initially doubters. You can look up some of the doubt in Mark 6.3 or John 7.5. But I can just imagine when, when I say half-brothers, Jesus spends his whole life telling them, well, Joseph's your dad, 
but he's not my dad. Can you imagine the conversations around the dinner table with Joseph and everyone trying to explain something? How do you explain deity to a family where your dad's a carpenter? But something happened after the resurrection, and not just something, but something so miraculous that it changed his life. I went back to the resurrection just because I'm curious about stuff like that, and I noted something. After the resurrection, do you know the first person Jesus appeared to? Mary. Mary, Mary, Mary. There's lots of Marys, too. We could do a whole other message on that. After Mary, then Peter. Peter, who doubted him? I mean, he probably was hoping he was first in line, right? And then after Peter, the 500. He initiates the entire birth of the church. But after the church's birth, who does Jesus find time to go speak to? His brother, James. After James, he then talks to the apostles, all 11 of them. They haven't picked up anyone yet. And finally, he speaks to Paul. After he's done speaking with Paul, the interesting component for that is Paul then has a call to go speak to the Gentiles. He had a vision, he had a dream, and so instantly after the affirmation of the resurrection, Paul, he heads out and begins his ministry to the Gentiles, which leaves James stuttering in his breath going, what am I going to do? Where where am I going to go? He's in Jerusalem, so he says, you know what, I'll stay right here in Jerusalem. I'm going to write a letter to the church in Jerusalem. He then becomes a pillar in the early church. He becomes known for his Christian ethics and his wisdom and his justice, and he's respected by both believers and non-believers throughout. He ends up being stoned uh, stoned after being pushed off of the Temple Mount in AD 62, and he writes it to the believers that are completely dispersed. Now, it's called the Diaspora. Now, the Jews were being so persecuted by Rome at the time that they're all dispersed, so they're pretty much out and about. And he's writing to them, like I said, it's a hostile environment to say, hey, look, I want to encourage you with some information that I think will be very beneficial. If you're a Christ follower at the time, you have Emperor Claudius on one side saying it's okay to persecute believing Jews. And then on the other side, you have Jews who say if you profess Jesus as the Messiah, that can cost you your life as well. But James is not thrown off by that in any way, shape, or form. He says, hey, look, these painful trials are all going to work out in your best interest. And he addresses each one of them in each of the five chapters by starting each of the five chapters with the word brethren. So it's definitely to the first group of Messianic Jews or believing Jews. And he writes this letter uh, at AD 44, so Jesus' death is probably within 14 to 15 years. So that makes many commentators believe that this is the first letter in the New Testament. Now, if it's the first letter in the New Testament that's being read, you can imagine how many times it's being read and scrutinized by the early church. So imagine someone who spent his entire life as a skeptic and non-believer is now writing to encourage the church. So I want to encourage you guys as we get ready to begin this study. It's five chapters— Probably most of you can read that pretty proficiently. I would encourage you to read it at some point today. Read it all the way through. It was a letter, so it wasn't designed to be read at one time. And then listen to the letter. So for those of you who have that Bible app or whatever, just put James on there and let it read. I think that will help provide some additional clarity as we begin the study. So let me pray and ask God to join us as we begin the study of James. Father God, first and foremost, I'm just so grateful that your half-brother took the time to write this letter can only imagine what it was like for him to grow up in the shadow of you, Father, and can only imagine how difficult these first words, when he penned them down, how difficult they actually were to grow up as a skeptic your entire life, and then after the resurrection have this encounter that, uh, as Paul said, so radically changed him. He, He wrote down some things, Father, that for some people are still really hard to believe, and yet for me, Father, I feel like it's like the title slide says, it's just real faith. Real works, real simple. And you just, he wanted to keep it super simple so that people could know the truth, embrace the truth, and then just be blessed by it. 
And I pray that you would do that same thing for us this morning, Father, as we celebrate the littles, as we celebrate kids going back to school, as we find all these other things to celebrate. Father, I just want to stop and celebrate your word. I want to celebrate your word that it's alive and breathing and that this letter that was written some time ago, Father, to this first body of believers is still pertinent and relevant to us and that you would use it to bless us and encourage us because we too are in afflictions. We too are suffering from trials and we need the word of God, the wisdom that can only come from the word of God. So be with us this morning as we turn to it and bless us, remove all the kind of static and noise that's in our head that we might hear from it and might speak clearly to us. Father, we do it all and say it all in your son's precious and holy name. Amen. So as I said, he's writing to new believers, and he's going to ask them a simple question. How can you live so hypocritically if you absolutely know the truth? The letter of James is influenced by Jesus' additional teaching of the Sermon on the Mount found in Matthew 5-7. So for those of you familiar with the Sermon on the Mount, it's referenced 15 separate times in the book of James. So if you want to turn with me now, you're kind of already speed reading to James, uh, New Testament after Hebrews and before 1 Peter. So we will read these first uh, eight verses, and then we'll jump in right here. So here we go. James, a servant of God and the Lord Jesus Christ, to the twelve tribes scattered among the nations, greetings. Consider it pure joy, my brother and sisters, whenever you face trials of many kinds, because you know that the testing of your faith produces perseverance. So let perseverance finish its work so that you might be mature and complete, not lacking anything. If any of you lacks wisdom, you should ask God who gives generously to all without finding fault, and it will be given to you. But when you ask, you must believe and not doubt, because the one who doubts is like a wave on the sea, blown and tossed by the wind. And that person should not expect to receive anything from the Lord. Such a person is double-minded and unstable in all they do. All right, so let's repack this first part of that. Paul is no longer available. He's kind of someone who would be ready to go for the church. He's left. He's starting his ministry to the Gentiles. So James is just saying, who can I write to that I know about? What is something that I know about? So he starts off by writing to the 12 tribes. So this is an indication that James is really focusing on the Jewish community. Uh, the 12 tribes haven't been called the 12 tribes in a while, but he calls them the 12 tribes because he still sees them as the 12 tribes. And he's writing this letter because he knows they're gathered in these small little pods everywhere. And he wants to give them something that when they read can be the source of encouragement. Yet in the opening line of the letter, something he didn't say was James, the half-brother of Jesus. Now I find that very interesting just to start off with, right? If you and I were the half-brother of Jesus, even though we couldn't kind of agree on who our father was, and we were writing a letter, and we'd been entirely skeptical, skeptical our entire life. Everyone knew us as James, Jesus' non-believing brother for their entire life. And now we're writing the first letter to help them begin their journey in faith. And we don't even associate ourselves with him as a family member. I found that interesting. But it's even more interesting is the word that he actually used. Like I said, slave. It's actually the word doulos. It's this idea that he's a bond servant, a willing servant to those people that he considers himself indentured to. And who is it? God, and then he says, the Lord Jesus Christ. These are definitive terms for both of them. He is saying, I am 100% committed to him. Just that alone probably was pretty shocking for an opening letter. But it wasn't always the case. Like I said, there are a few glimpses in the Bible of what James's actual life and the family's actual life was relative to Jesus's early ministry. One of those can be seen early on when Jesus is first recruiting his 12 disciples and begins his public ministry. He starts by gathering some crowds and speaking to them. 
And when his family hears about crowds gathering and Jesus speaking to him, the family decides to go out and make a little journey and speak to him. Mark 3.21 tells you if you want to look that little story up. Basically what happens when they hear about it, they go to take charge of him because they said he must be out of his mind. Jesus is out of his mind. They must have thought that something was seriously wrong with Jesus. How is he considering himself a teacher? He's been raised in the same household that we've been raised in. He's the son of a carpenter after all, right? Why are the crowds listening? What is it that he has to offer them? This is making no sense. He must be out of his mind. I'm sure that's what the family was thinking. We're going to be embarrassed if we don't stop him now. Let's get him back home before he really makes this thing a mess. Can you imagine the conversations in the household table about Mary saying, Judas, Simon, Joseph, can't you be more like your brother Jesus? I'm the youngest of three brothers, I can tell you. That's not a conversation you want to have. Not a way to gain the favor of your brothers. Yet after the resurrection, a situation occurs. Jesus comes to, he comes to a few other people, but by the time he comes to James, something supernaturally changes in James. Paul actually records it in 1 Corinthians 13. He says that something radically happened. And I wrote down in my mind, can you imagine the conversation when Jesus reappears to you after telling you and seeing all the different things he's done his whole life, 30, 33 years with you, and you not believing, and then he shows back up and he says, hey, James, how you doing? And James is like, Jesus, is that you? And he's like, yeah, James, it's me. And he's like, but I thought you, I thought you were dead. I, I saw you, you were dead. And he's like, yes, James, I was dead. But, but now you're alive. I am, James, and I have something I need to talk to you. And James mumbles underneath his breath, I can't believe you're alive. I can't believe it. And Jesus says, I know, but you will soon. I have work for you to do. Can you imagine the commissioning ceremony of, of doubting your whole life, then having that individual come back to you and say, hey, you were wrong, and I know that you're wrong. He wasn't just wrong. He was fully committed to being wrong. I almost think that James was probably writing an initial letter as a skeptic, and yet Jesus has already done this before with other people in the Bible who were completely in opposition to him and turned them with his love to be some of his greatest components of, of uh, expanding the ministry for God. James became such a believer of God. He is, his skepticism was gone. His sibling rivalry was gone. He became such a believer in God that he actually became known for an interesting phrase, old camel knees. Old camel knees. It was said that James had spent so much time in prayer from the time of his conversion to the time of his death, probably about 17 years, 16 years, that he had actually formed calluses on his knees that looked like camel knees. Can you imagine the conversion? Can you imagine the dedication that he had to the risen Lord after refuting him his whole life? That's a powerful motivator. So by the time he writes this first phrase, consider it pure joy, my brothers and sisters, that whenever you face trials of many kinds, count it pure joy. Why, why would you count it joy when, you afflace, uh, when you're facing afflictions? Jesus, Jesus, James is trying to reframe something for them. He's trying to re- reframe afflictions so that you see them as an opportunity to, to maintain strength in the Lord. Um, you remember that other song, the joy of the Lord is my strength, right? He's trying to say there's a, there's a strength that comes when you rely on the Lord in afflictions that if you can get to that point, you can actually consider it all joy, now, unspoken belief for most believers is when we come to Jesus, somehow uh, the blessing of the Lord makes it to where we kind of have this buffer against trials, right? And not only is that not true, but it's dangerous. I actually tell people when you come to the Lord, 
be prepared for trials. It's almost like you invite trials in by coming to the Lord. Sometimes we do more damage to Christianity by not being honest about what it's about rather than trying to candy coat it, right? Let's be honest. Any of you come to the Lord and did it get easier? No, because the Spirit of God wakes you up to the stuff that you can't do anymore and that's no longer going to bring satisfaction. And so we have to be prepared for that. And James is saying, hey, guys, this is a reality of what you signed up for. It's okay. But I want you to realize something. When you encounter various trials, if you have a different attitude towards them, not only can you persevere through them, but you can actually grow through them. Jesus even confirmed that in this world you will have troubles. But take, take heed, I've overcome the world. Trials have a higher purpose. They test your faith. They will either grow it or expose it. So let me say that again. Trials will either grow it or it will expose it. Um, I think that the point of what James is saying is if, if trial produces biblical patience, it actually the word hupomone, if biblical patience is produced by the trial, it's a trial that can endure under pressure. That phrase right there literally means to endure under pressure. I don't know about you, but some of us like pressure, some of us don't like pressure, but he's saying this is an opportunity that you can get to that situation. If you don't like dealing with uh, pressure, then you probably should not ex uh, come to a, a conversion situation because by putting yourself out there and saying, hey, I believe in the Lord and he has an answer to some of these situations, you're going to be challenged. The trial has a purpose. It's not meaningless or unfortunate. It's not some kind of punishment as the world would have us believe. It's purposeful and it's directed by God for our growth. So trials give us the chance to, to sense the, the joy of the Lord. The joy of the Lord then gives us the strength to persevere. That perseverance then becomes an act of endurance that helps grow our faith. And what else can we do once we grow our faith? We can keep persevering. We can keep understanding that because verse 3 and 4. Because you know this, that the testing of your faith is producing perseverance, that perseverance will do something. It will, it will ensure the finish, what you've been perfect, uh, perfect and matured for. You won't be lacking anything. Now, God isn't interested in watching our faith get weaker. He's trying to grow our faith. So testing your faith can produce, ensure, it can produce endurance, but it doesn't have to. Okay? Testing is an interesting word there. Testing. I found this out. The, there's evidence uh, in the Greek times that when uh, pottery shards are found, there's this word dokomos stamped on the bottom of uh, ancient pottery shards. Dokomos means to be tested in the furnace, tried and tested and found approved. And I couldn't help but think about that. That's what God's kind of doing through trials and testing with us. He's dokomosis. He's, he's stamping us tried and tested and true in the furnaces of trials. And James is saying if you can have that kind of attitude, then you can understand how you can get to the point of perfect and complete. Now, from someone who coached for many, many years, I can tell you this. I've never coached a baseball player or a football player or an athlete to think that if you do something repetitively enough, you could ever be perfect at it. Do any of you, have any of you perfected anything? I mean, ask the musicians who play their, you know, instruments. So have you perfected it by doing it over and over again? No, but you can make it permanent, right? You can make, you can make it to where you're far more proficient at it. And that's what he's saying. This concept of perfect and complete is a little confusing to you, but he was actually talking to them about the Olympic pentathlon. The Olympic pentathlon that went on back then had two different components. One, you had to complete all five events. If you completed all five events, you were complete. If you won after completing all five events, you were perfect. It doesn't mean you ran the race perfectly. It just means you ran the race in such a way that you were able to win. And I can't hear the echoes of other scriptures saying, hey, run the race in such a way as to win, right? Perfect and complete, tried and tested. 
This is now a whole new understanding of what it means. Uh, Awana, we used to teach the kids, approve workmen who are not ashamed, right? How, how is it we get to this point that we're not ashamed of our faith? We've got to be perfect and complete. We've got to be tried and tested. And that's only going to take place in the trials of life. Endurance is the opportunity to lead us into spiritual maturity. Trials help us become more like Jesus. That's kind of the essence of what we're after, is to become more like Jesus. So you can see why James is saying, consider it joy. Consider, by the way, is count, right? He's saying, count it all joy. Every time you go through an affliction, count it. Think you're getting closer to, to being more like Christ every time you get a chance to go through this. He's not saying I'm someone who enjoys it and I'm going to just go look for it wherever I can find it. He's simply saying, I understand what it does. I'm not saying it guarantees growth, but it does provide the opportunity for it, right? That's a whole different way to think about the trials that you're facing in life. It doesn't guarantee that you're going to grow in your Christian faith, but it does provide you the opportunity to grow in it. And that's what we're here for. We're here to grow. We need to test our spiritual muscles. Like any athlete, testing of your muscles prepares you for additional work ahead. If you don't test your muscles, you can't do it. He's not saying go out and look for trials. He's not saying go run a marathon without doing any training. That would be foolish. That's not wisdom. He's saying our attitude towards this situation needs to be this. I'm trying to have faith. I'm trying to grow. And I'm trusting that God is using it. And that attitude that we have about the situation is the difference between a blessing and a burden. Of course, I have my pages in reverse now, so that that would not make sense. Do you view yourself as a victim? Do you view yourself as someone who's just under affliction and basically suffering needlessly? If you are, then you haven't actually found the reason why God is allowing that trial in your life. You have to change your attitude. In order for you to change your attitude, something has to occur. The first thing that has to occur is real, you need to realize that you need wisdom from God to make it through. Wisdom from God is very interesting. It's not just the ability to understand something, but it's the wisdom from God that you have has both the information from God and the opportunity of how to apply it, how to use it. We need wisdom from God to rejoice in our trials. So back to verse 5 and 8. If you lack wisdom, ask God who gives generously. He doesn't find fault, and he will give it to you. And when you ask, don't believe and then doubt, because of the one who doubts is like a wave of the sea, blown and tossed by the wind. That person should not expect to receive anything from the Lord, for such a person is double-minded in all they do. The wisdom that he's referring to is found only in the Lord. It's only found in his word. It's not general wisdom. It's specific wisdom. So what James is saying is the next time you find yourself in a situation overwhelmed and discouraged, go directly to God and ask him. God gives generously. He's not holding back. That's important. He's got, a, he's got a cattle on a thousand hills, right? You're not going to overwhelm God with your requests. And then when he gives you that information, realize that he gives it without fault. Just like when we have sin issues and we go to the Lord. He has the ability to hear our concerns, to hear our requests, and then simply remove them from his mind. What he's giving you is not just simple wisdom. It's insight from God on how to use it. And I put that down twice. Uh, insight from God on how to use it. I have a little thing in my office that I'm always constantly kind of sharing with people. Knowledge by itself is lethal. Knowledge without comprehension is useless, right? You can know a lot of general information, but if you don't understand the information, it's not ever going to actually be useful to you. And that's what James is saying. You guys are going through trials. You're suffering in all these different adversities, and you have knowledge that you're going through the trials. But what you don't understand is what that trial is actually trying to do. That trial is trying to do something in you. It's trying to allow something to happen in your life. So that your faith can grow, so that others can believe. Seeing how you go through trials is going to be crucial to that. So here's something I want you to do. If you're in the middle of a trial, I want you to specifically ask God, 
what are you trying to show me in this trial? Are you trying to show me a kingdom purpose? Or are you trying to show me an earthly purpose? Are you trying to show me that in this situation I should stay and trust that you're going to work it out? Or, Father, are you asking me to leave? Uh, matter of fact, wasn't that a song? Should I stay or should I go? Right now, you, you didn't understand it was biblically based, right? Should I stay or should I go? Why? Because everything that comes from the Lord has this an opportunity to show you and reveal something about what it means. Romans 8, right? Your, your parents always quoted Romans 8. All things work together, right? This is how all things are working together. If you're asking God, I don't understand this situation. If I had my choice, I would not be in this situation, but I'm in this situation. So is this something you're trying to show me, or is this something I'm trying to hold on to? Is this something you put in front of me and say, I need you to persevere, have that endurance, you're going to learn something from it? Or is this just something I want to hold on to because I liked it and I need it, and you're saying, fine, if you want that, it can be the boat anchor that takes you down. And I think it's kind of nerve-wracking because in the end he says you're going to end up being called a double-minded person. If you, if you ask God and then he tells you and then you say, but I don't know. He's like... Don't be tossed about. And think about a wave in the sea. It's tossed about. It's never ceasing. It goes wherever the wind blows. That's what a double-minded person is like. And because we live by the ocean, I also thought about this. You know, a rogue wave is dangerous, right? Someone who's been tossed about long enough in the sea can eventually become a rogue wave. And maybe if you have double-minded people in your life that are constantly being tied you know, pushed about by the wind, whatever's going on in the world around, and they're constantly just ebbing and flowing, that same kind of person could be lethal in your life. Here's what I would prefer that you say. God, why am I in this situation, and what would you like me to learn from this? Okay. And regardless of that, God, I trust you. I know that you can hold me through this. I know that you're walking me through even though I don't see. I'm resting in you, and I'm not going to lean into my own understanding, but in all ways, I'm going to trust you. Right? That's a really difficult thing to do. Uh, Proverbs 3, 5, and 6 is a verse that all of us have heard, and, and we all know pretty well, but I mean... Trust in the Lord, I mean, and always, trust in the Lord always, lean not into your understanding, and always acknowledge him, and he will direct your path. It gets really, when it's dark outside, and you, you, you want to hold the lantern yourself, and you want to guide yourself, and what he's saying is, I got you, I got you in this situation, come to me when you need wisdom, and I will direct you. If you ask the Lord, and then you doubt what the Lord says, it's foolishness. Uh, Proverbs 18, 2 puts it this way, a fool finds no pleasure in understanding, but delights in the in stirring and the airing of their own opinions. If you're someone that just wants to constantly talk about what you think and why you think that, maybe take a deep breath and repurpose that in your heart because that's kind of leaning into your own understanding. That's kind of in opposition to what God's word is encouraging us to do, right? Stand down to that and say, you know what, God? In my own understanding, I'm uncomfortable. I couldn't help but think of this example for double-mindedness. How many of you remember the amazing... Uh, driver's ed car with two steering wheels yes right and the first time you got in a car you thought not only was something wrong but something dangerous is about to happen right because I'm 16 well 15 and a half and I just did driver's training with my dad and I know what that was like that was dangerous with one steering wheel and now I've got some dude that I don't know it's with a clipboard and he's sitting over there yelling stuff in between everything I'm trying to do especially when I'm parallel parking when I've always almost hit the car twice already and he's got a steering wheel, and he's trying to help me. Can you imagine that? Think about it this way. Your worldly spirit, your worldly heart is kind of trying to drive one steering wheel. You're trying to guide and direct on what makes sense to you and what you see. And then your spiritual side is saying, hey, let it go. Jesus, take the wheel. We've got a lot of music in my head today. Jesus, take the wheel, right? Let it, let it go. I, I'm in the passenger seat, but I got this. Like, I'm going to take you. 
If not, can you imagine the, the conflict as you're trying to steer and they're trying to steer? There's no way that that car is going to make it anywhere safely. And it's almost one thing guaranteed, and that, that the vehicle is going to wreck. And so much of that is, looks like our life. It's like we don't realize what we actually do to people by living the lives that we're living. Um, I actually made note of this in my clothes, but I'm going to jump to it a little bit early. Let me ask you, what do you think the biggest detriment to Christianity is? If someone came up to you and said, I understand you're a Christian, but why isn't Christianity growing in the world today? What do you think is the single greatest detriment to Christianity? I thought about this over the last 10 days writing this message, and I came up with one answer. Christians who don't live like Christians, right? There's nothing more detrimental to our faith than people who say they're Christians and then they live these lives that nobody wants to live like. There's nothing attractive about that life that they're living. There's no peace. There's no strength. There's no endurance. There's no hope. There's no joy. There's nothing about that life. And then answer this question. And what's the single greatest reason why Christianity grows? A Christian who lives like a Christian, right? There's not, I mean, it's, it's the same answer on both sides. I mean, we don't understand the influence we have and how God has invited us into this, but what James realizes, I get it. I was skeptical my whole life, and I was 100% convinced that I was right. Some of you today, maybe even listening, some of you today are 100% convinced that Jesus doesn't exist, and guess what? You're 100% wrong. But that's okay. At least you do something 100%. Wasn't that the old story? Do something, do it at 100%. What I'm here to tell you is James is simply saying you're in good company because the reality is not one person sitting in this building today or one person listening to this message was ever 100% right when it came to their initial thought about Jesus. We were all sinners saved by grace. We were all astray when someone came and shared hope and faith with us. And maybe for you, they didn't just share hope and faith. Maybe you saw something in that individual's life and how they were going through trials and tribulations and afflictions that was attractive to you. And you said, you know what? I like the fact that this guy has problems, but he doesn't cuss like everyone else. I like the fact that this woman's like everyone else, but when she goes out on dates, she doesn't kind of do the same things, and she carries herself in a different way. There's things about our faith, there's things about stuff that we can do that becomes very attractive to people. And what it is, is live a blessed life. A blessed life. You cannot live a blessed life unless you're a child of God who walks in afflictions with the attitude that James is trying to teach. It doesn't come from any other way. Now, there's other people that might have a financially blessed life, but that blessing is like, uh, you know, what did he say? The one guy said, uh, who was one of the richest people, how much more money do you need before you stop? One more dollar. You know, one more dollar. That's, a, that's not blessed. A blessed life, I wrote down what blessed is, is someone who's genuinely happy. Someone whose happiness is not directly tied to circumstances and exclusively a product of walking with God through afflictions and trials. So I mentioned to you that James was martyred for his death. Let me tell you something, how it actually ultimately ends for James. James was so committed to his faith that they found him on the Temple Mount preaching, and they threw him off the Temple Mount in an effort to kill him in front of all of the people that he was speaking to. James lands some distance down. Not only does he not die, in this crippled kind of broken state, he then goes to those same knees that he's always spent his time in, and he begins praying for the very people that just threw him off the Temple Mount. The people then realize that old Camelies is back in his sacred position praying, and then they rally the people around him, and they go down and they stone James while he prays for the very people that are killing him. 
I couldn't help but think that was a fitting way to end the message because for a guy who lived his entire life as a skeptic, for a guy whose entire commitment was, you might be my half-brother, but I have nothing in common with you. For somebody who had Jesus come to him and tap him on the shoulder and says, it's okay, I know you were wrong, but I love you anyways. Let me tell you what I have for you. Let me tell you I have, I have something that you need to say and something that will make sense exclusively for you. It seems like James dying while praying for the people around him. Who does that sound like? It sounds like his brother. It sounds like he did make that transition. It sounds like he made that transition very well. He prayed for the very people, Jesus himself on the cross. You know, what would you say if you were on a cross and you saw people treating that way and you knew you had nothing wrong? Would you be thinking, forgive them, Lord, for they know not what they're doing? I don't know. I don't know what I'd be thinking. But I know what Jesus was thinking because it was written down. Forgive them, Lord. They don't know what they're doing. I have a feeling I know what James was praying. Lord, forgive them. They don't know. But like me, I do know. I met you. I know your death and your burial and your resurrection is sufficient for me. And I trust someday that they might know you too. I'm actually done, and I'm going to have the band and all come back up. And while the band and all them are coming back up, I want you to just kind of ask yourself a question this morning. If Jesus died to give us new life and new hope, then why is it we're still living in that lie about what trials and afflictions are actually about? I'm sure this morning that some of you came in here, and under the trials and afflictions, like I said, the general conversations that I had with some of you this morning— some of the general conflict and afflictions that we're still going through seem to be getting the better part of our faith still. My hope as we study the book of James over the next eight to ten weeks would be that James wants you to understand something. It's one thing if you don't know. It's one thing if you don't understand. But if you've come to Jesus Christ, then you have the opportunity to know. And if you know Jesus Christ and the Spirit of God is living in you, then the Spirit of God is beckoning you to understand. If you know and you understand, you have to respond. To not respond to the Spirit of God is a dangerous place for anyone to believe. Matter of fact, there's only one unforgivable prayer, one unforgivable sin, right? To refute the work of the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit trying to tell you and teach you and lead you into the knowledge of who Christ is and what he wants for our life. And when we refute that Holy Spirit, when we hold that Holy Spirit down, we put ourselves in a really dangerous, awkward position. And James is saying, hey, look, I want you to realize something. If you don't have wisdom, then ask God. He gives it generously and without fault. But once you understand what he's trying to say in trials and tribulations, you can't go through afflictions like everyone else. We can't live like everyone else. That's not what we're called to do. We're called to live like Jesus. Jesus didn't live his life in afflictions like everyone else. He used every one of his afflictions, and he taught his guys, hey, look, they stoned you when you got in the town. When you wake up from being stoned, knock the stones off and go right back in and preach, right? Isn't that what we see in the scripture? We see that's what he taught, and that's what happened with some of the guys that followed him. Whatever they do to you, only I can take your soul. Only I am the one that has control of the future. So don't worry about what man says or does to you. Worry about what I say and worry about what I can do to you. I pray this morning as the worship team gets ready to sing that you would just kind of ask yourself, Lord, you've saved me. You've saved me for a commission, and I know there's work to be done, and I know there's few workers that are actually doing the work. Change my heart. Change my mind today about what trials and temptations and afflictions are all about so I can get back to doing the work that you've put me on this earth for. Your family, your friends, the people you go to work with, your oikos, the people that are around you, they're waiting for you to live differently than those that they're living with currently. 
Father God, I thank you for the morning. I thank you for the opportunity to see in James that there's a different way that we're called to live, a way that's victorious in adversity, a way that doesn't allow a trial to have a last laugh, a way that makes a trial an opportunity to see growth in our life. You know, a lot of us are in trials. A lot of us are in afflictions, but a lot of us are not coming out with a faith that's been grown. A lot of us are coming out with a faith that's been battered and beaten. And we find ourselves crawling on the ground asking why. Rather than just saying like what you said to the Lord, if it's possible for this cup to pass, then let it pass. If not, then here am I. May I drink of this cup, Father, and, and be reminded that the afflictions that I'm privileged to go through are nothing like the afflictions that you, you went through. And if I can live in such a way as that I can go through these afflictions and, and simply reflect the spirit of God to these people around me, then, then, Father, may the kingdom of God grow from it. Because in the end, that's what we learn from the Great Commission. We've got to go, we've got to make, we've got to baptize, and we've got to teach. Anything else that we can do, it's good. But nothing's better than just keeping the main thing the main thing, Father. Be with us this morning as we try to clear our hearts and minds to hear from you about trials and tribulations that we're currently in, Father, that we need to turn over to you. May everything that we continue to say and do in this building bring honor and glory to and through your Son, Jesus Christ.
much. Hey, look, next week, Pastor Eric's coming back from sabbatical. Don't miss out on that. If you have any prayer requests at the back of your chairs, there's cards for filling those out. We love to pray for those. The elders pray on Wednesday for those. 
If you have some questions today, let's say you're at church and you just, you have a question about something you heard or something that's going on, afterwards will be available to kind of stay with you and pray and talk. Whatever you're going through, if you want to tithe, you want to do anything, we're glad that you're here. It's always worth it to make an effort to be in the house of the Lord. And I hope that you're here next week because you never know what's going to happen in the house of the Lord. So just show up. God bless you guys for making the effort today. Go out and be the church. Have a wonderful day. We'll see you next week.